It's like, don't forget that. Don't forget. Okay. One of the reasons that I put on the title, Helping the Fearful and the Hopeless, is because if you look in your Bible, you're not going to find clinical depression or generalized anxiety disorder mentioned. However, we see throughout the Bible many, many times that it speaks about fear, it speaks about worry, it speaks about feeling hopeless or despair. And so we see lots of examples in the Bible to the kinds of things that people who are dealing with anxiety and depression are experiencing. So my first goal, help you think biblically about anxiety and depression. And then my second goal is to provide you some practical tools that will help people in your groups who are struggling. You might feel a little overwhelmed. Maybe you have people in your group who are really struggling with anxiety and depression. Maybe you yourself feel like you fall into that and you're struggling with anxiety and depression. And one of the reasons you came here was because you're feeling that. So regardless of kind of what brought you here, my hope is that you'll get something helpful either as you kind of wrestle through it for yourself and then certainly as you encounter it in people in your groups. All right, so I thought I would kind of fill us in first on some pandemic stats. I'm sure it's no shock to anyone here that because of COVID, we have seen significant increases in symptoms of anxiety and symptoms of depression. Um, so the CDC reports that symptoms of anxiety disorders are three times pre-pandemic levels and symptoms of depressive disorders are four times pre-pandemic levels. So it's just escalating. And I don't think we've seen the end of that escalation, honestly. I think that we will continue to see people who are really struggling with just the changes that have occurred in their lives relationally with jobs, with just disruption to routines, education, all of it. Um, we also know, and I'm going to come back to this, you might wonder why I put this up here, but people are less physically active because of COVID. So um, one study I looked at talked about how 10,000 steps was kind of the average before COVID hit, and now that decreased to 4,600 steps per day. Um, again, I'll come back to that. But that's notable, I think, that we are moving a lot less because of COVID. In fact, one of the things that I noticed when COVID first hit was, like, when we first shut down, I probably two or three weeks in was like, I'm going insane. I have three children. They are nine, seven, and five. And I was like, I walk from my bedroom to the living room, to the playroom, to the coffee machine. Like, and that's all I do all day long. I don't do anything. And so I started taking early morning walks um, before my kids got up and I still do it now. I love it so much. But like that was just, it made me stir crazy to just feel like, like I'm literally, if it's counting my steps, I don't have one of the fancy watches, but if it was, I probably would have cried with how few <laughs> steps I was taking those first few weeks when the pandemic hit. And then we also know that people are feeling, are, are less social as a result of COVID. They're feeling more isolated and lonely. And the outcomes of loneliness are significant. Um, as many as 43% of people have met criteria for high loneliness and time on screens has doubled. And it has been a lot of time that we've been spending on screens, even pre-pandemic. Now we, again, do a lot of work on screens. We engage socially a lot on screens. Even like you guys, many of you experienced that in your community groups, right? We moved to Zoom platforms and things like that because it was the way that maybe some group members felt safest or you felt safest. Um, and all of these things can perpetuate kind of that growing anxiety or depression. 
again, I would just say that if you feel like you're kind of fall, you fall into that, um, that there is hope, that there is, um, there is good reason to hold on to what we have in Christ to kind of help us through then. And doesn't mean that our worries and fears and feelings of hopelessness will ever necessarily be completely eliminated here on earth, but that there's hope in the midst of them. Okay. So I kind of wanted to start with what not to do. (laughs) So if someone is in your group and they're struggling with symptoms of anxiety or depression, what should you not do? Um, First of all, I'd say don't ignore it. I think sometimes we can feel like either ill-equipped or you're not quite sure what to say or you're going to make it better or worse. And, And so sometimes we have this almost response of like, I don't know how to respond, so we're just not gonna respond, we'll move on, and hopefully it'll take care of itself. So don't ignore it. I know none of you would, but it felt worth saying. Okay, secondly, I would say, don't just give them a Bible verse and send them on their way. Um, I think that biblical counselors in particular sometimes have gotten a bad rap for, um, people have this mentality that like, if you go to someone who's a biblical counselor and you're struggling with anxiety, they're gonna give you Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything and say like study this verse put it in your pocket you're good and that can feel incredibly invalidating to the person who is struggling with anxiety is there power in God's word absolutely should we use scripture yes but is it going you know for most people is memorizing a verse enough to fully dismiss or remove what they're struggling with no it's not so Don't just give them a Bible verse and send them on their way. Don't make the primary solution seeking medical care or secular therapy. With medical care, I would say, yes, there is good in the advice at times to say, maybe you should go talk to your primary care physician um, or if it's for the child, maybe you should go talk to your child's pediatrician about what's going on. Make sure that they're aware of what you guys are experiencing. But in the end, medical care can treat symptoms, but it can't ultimately reach our hearts and what we need most in Christ. So can I be good in it? Yes. Is it going to solve all of our problems? No, I don't think so. Doctors can treat symptoms, but they cannot provide an ultimate solution. So here, that whole sentence there, there can be good, but it's not an ultimate solution to seek care or secular therapy. Um, also don't assume that if you aren't a mental health professional that you have nothing to offer I I say you absolutely have something important to offer the people in your groups and um, the more that you kind of believe that and lean into Christ as you try to help people who are struggling um, the more helpful you will be So hold on to that. You do have something to offer them. You can do, really, you can be God's hands and feet to them. Okay. So um, thinking biblically about anxiety and depression. The key point I kind of want to make here is that there are three, I I would say three main routes to anxiety and depression. Um, And I did not number these because I think that these all tend to be closely intertwined. I don't think you could tease them apart easily and say, well, this person is struggling for this reason and this person is struggling for this reason. So what are those reasons? One, 
the world and our bodies don't work as intended, right? We know that we, you know, experience the effects of the fall in our physical bodies. We feel that in our emotions, we feel that in our brains, we feel that in pain that our bodies experience. Um, and all of those things can contribute to anxiety and depression. We also can experience anxiety and depression because people sin against us, right? If you are in a situation with a person who deeply hurts you, that can lead to feeling despair or hopelessness or worry or fear that you'll get hurt again. Um, so the sin that other people commit against us can add to those symptoms. But thirdly, we all struggle with our own sinful desires, inclinations, and behaviors. Um, and so the key again to me is that these are all intertwined. It is the combination of the fact that my body in this world does not work as God intended it to because of sin, because of the fall, because people sin against me and I get hurt. And then I often, as Adam pointed out, want to respond sinfully. I often have my own sinful inclinations and desires that are at war within me. And so with all of those, the three kind of put together, and again, it can look a little bit different in terms of how all these work together, but some combination of all of them are at work when we're struggling with anxiety and depression. Um, I think that another key aspect of thinking biblically is to remember that emotions are a window into the heart. Um, and emotions play a part in anxiety and depression, certainly. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's all just an emotional experience. Emotional experiences, I think, can be a little bit more fluid, right? You're sad or you're happy and it, things can change, whereas depression can kind of feel like a constant heaviness. But emotions are certainly entwined with it and they ultimately give us some insight into what we love. Um, and so I can learn about what I most desire by the way I respond to things. It could be something as simple as, on your way to work and you get stuck in traffic. What do you most desire? You most desire to be at work on time. And so that may lead to, you know, yelling at the driver in your head or maybe not in your head um, because someone has gotten into your way. I like this quote by Alistair Groves and Winston Smith. The deepest wise of our emotions is what scripture is constantly pointing to, the love and worship of your heart. And so I wanted to give a quick example to kind of articulate how this can look. Um, about five years ago, my mom passed away from cancer. And so a very natural response to that is grief, obviously. I was very close to my mom, and certainly I felt some of those symptoms of depression in the time following her passing. Um, but one of the things that happened about a year after she passed away was that I found myself really feeling grief heavily. And I feel like that's a common thing. A year after losing someone you love, sometimes it gets really heavy at certain landmarks. Around a year, I felt that. Um, but then I also started getting really frustrated at myself because I felt like I should not be feeling the way I was. I felt like I should not be as um, weighed down by the grief I was experiencing. And so when I explored that deeper, one of the things I realized was, yes, I was grieving and that was a normal response. But I also, when I was looking at what I loved, I loved an idea of myself that was stronger than what I felt like I was showing at that moment. And so there was pride involved in that too. And so that's kind of the interplay between, yes, we can feel sad because of the broken world. My mom had cancer. That's not the way God intended it. She wasn't supposed to die at the point that she died in 
the world before the fall. But in that, then I had all this anger at myself because of my own pride of like, I should be handling it like this. And why am I so upset? And it's been a year. You're supposed to move on. Like, what is wrong with you? And once I realized that part, then it was easier for me to repent and to make progress kind of out of it. And I'm not not trying to simplify an experience with depression and say that that's how it works for everyone. But in my case, that was a big part of just what I went through. Um, does that make sense? Explain that okay? All right. Okay. So I feel like I can say this because I'm a psychologist. <laughs> so I'm going to say it. Through the Bible, God speaks to worry, fear, and hopelessness in ways that secular psychology never can. Um, I love trying to help people. I love my students that I'm helping to train to be future psychologists, and yet there's a gap. There is something that we cannot provide people through secular psychology that only comes through Christ. And the way I, I guess I frame this is our ultimate hope is not in a method, it's not in a certain kind of therapy, it's not in a medication, it's not in changing circumstances or therapy, it is in a person. And that is a great source of hope for all of us and that we can also share with the people in our groups. We don't have to have the method down. We don't have to know whether they need to be on medication or not. We just need to continue to encourage them to grow or to meet the person in Christ. Um, some of my favorite verses that kind of stood out to me as I was preparing for this include, but because of this, his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. When we were dead, Christ met us in our sin and he saved us. Um, another one that I think, to me, it kind of points out the potential problems with um, emphasizing the solutions in the world apart from Christ. Uh, again, there can be some good things, some good tools found in counseling, secular psychology, and things like that. Um, but ultimately, we need to put our hope in Christ. So see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. Again, I'm not saying that psychology is evil. I am a psychologist. But I think that we have to be careful that we recognize that um, ultimately what we need to depend on is Christ. And of course, we have 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, just reminding us over and over again that scripture gives us what we need to live a godly life. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every work that God has ordained for us to do, we can use and rely on scripture to help us grow and figure out what that looks like and how we are to do it. And then finally, just the reminder of the person of Christ, that we have someone who empathizes with us in our weakness. Um, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And he is with us, and that is a great source of encouragement for us. All right, so let's get practical. How do we help people in our groups who may be struggling um, with worry, fear, hopelessness? Okay, so first, I would say one of the first things we can do is listen. This is something we all can do. Again, you don't have to feel like 
you have all of the tools or the need to know things to support someone, we can all listen. Um, and a lot of times people who are struggling, they often need people who will just kind of hear them and not judge them, but support them as they're struggling. I love 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and we urge you brothers and sisters to warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage those who are disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. I would say that in many cases, people who are depressed and struggling with anxiety tend not to be disruptive, um, but they often are disheartened, they often feel weak, and they often require our patience. And so looking at a verse like this encourages us kind of what, what strategy we should take. If someone is feeling weak or disheartened, we encourage them, we help them, we are patient with them and show that constant care. Another thing that we can do is we can practically encourage them, we can meet a need. Um, so this could be simple things. You can send them texts letting you know that you're thinking about them or praying for them. When I was making this, this uh, teaching for tonight, I, I wanted to make sure you guys didn't feel overwhelmed. I tried to really focus on things that I felt like, I know you guys are all busy. This is not your full-time job. Um, this isn't my full-time job either. I get it. And supporting people in your group, it takes a lot sometimes. And so I was trying to come up with really practical, practical tangible things that you guys could do that would not feel overwhelming. Um, so you can send them a text, you can make them a meal every so often. If you know it was a really particularly rough week or they had something new happening that really just sent them either spiraling or getting very anxious, you, know, you can meet a practical need or watch their kids for a short time so that the parents could go out or you know, just knowing who they are, what their concerns are. But another thing I put on there that I love is you could go for a walk with them. This really takes the pressure off of you um, because again, you don't have to necessarily even talk about what they're struggling with. They may open up while they're walking with you anyway, but just the act of getting them moving, we know has practical positive consequences. So for people who are struggling with mental health issues of some kind, just physical activity can be helpful. Doing it with someone else helps us battle against loneliness. It helps us know someone is with us. And it's amazing how conversation that feels forced one-on-one -on -one or in group can become so much more open while you're both looking in the same direction and just walking. Um, you know, it's like the story they were telling earlier about, I don't know if we have people from the group who uh, they went hiking, you know, the guys did. Like, what a great way to get people all moving and talking because it just takes the pressure off and sometimes conversation flows a lot more easily. So recognizing that those uh, you know, we're walking a lot less, we're often moving a lot less. This is one really practical and easy way that you could support someone who's struggling in your group. Okay, so number three. This is one of my favorite ones. You could read a, through a book of the Bible with them, and this is not as daunting as it, it may sound. Um, so three that I would recommend. Ephesians, Philippians, and 1 Peter, which if you're thinking about the size of books, you immediately recognize that these are short books. Ephesians has six chapters, Philippians has four, 1 Peter has five. And my encouragement would be that you not even try to tackle a whole book in a week or anything like that. Like you could literally settle on one chapter for a week at a time and say, hey, let's both just try to read Ephesians one this week. Your goal could be we each read it every day, that one chapter. Um, it could be that you break it down further and like, let's just read the first paragraph today and then tomorrow we'll read the next section. 
Again, manageable, small amounts, but the goal is to process it more deeply. So you're gonna read really, really slowly. And one of the things that I often, when I'm doing counseling with people, um, this is something I often do with them and we work on together in counseling. I have them keep track in some way of whatever portion they're reading to first kind of pull out of it, what does this passage tell me about who God is? And I do this because when we're struggling, one of the things we most need reminders in is the character of God. Um, we forget who he is in the midst of our struggles and our suffering. And so we need to go through scripture and kind of learn how to pull those truths out. Parts of scripture, it's really, really obvious. Like you could read a portion and say like, it literally says God is faithful. That is who God is. But other portions you might read and be like, I have to think more deeply. What am I learning about the character or the, the qualities in God? in this chapter and it helps you to get to know his character better. So this could be something good for you, it could be good for them. And again, it could just result in periodic texts, you know, once or twice a week. Like, what did you get out of this chapter? Who did you, what did you learn about who God is through your time studying it? Um, another question I like to give them is, what is one way it challenges them to grow? You know, again, just pulling out something practical um, that helps them connect scripture to life. I find when I'm doing counseling with people, again, this is just something that we really all need help with. I need help with it. Maybe you need help with it. We need to constantly have people who are engaging with us and thinking, okay, here's what it says. How does that connect with me? And reading through a book of the Bible really slowly can give you the space to try to connect some of those dots. And then finally, maybe more specifically, or maybe you switch out these two questions. How does this passage apply to specific situations in my own life? And again, the goal there is just to help them to really break it down and connect the dots that like, you know, here, this is who God is in the midst of my struggle. This is how, what his promises in his word, how it connects to my life. Okay. Any questions about this? Okay. We'll have more time for questions at the end. Okay, so number four, an, another one that I, I really think can be helpful is Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, is reading through the Psalms together, um, praying through the Psalms together. The Psalms give us a really good model of how to deal with our own suffering. We see countless examples of people who are dealing with despair, who are dealing with fear, and in Every psalm with the exception of one where despair or fear is kind of a focal point of the psalm, it turns back around into praise toward God. It turns back around to the psalmist saying, singing about God's faithfulness, reminding themselves of who God is, what God's character is. Um, so one of the things that I sometimes ask people to do, and again, not just as a counselor, but people that I'm just discipling, you know, I'll encourage them, go through the Psalms and find one that resonates with you. There's 150. <laughs> There's got to be one that you're like, yes, this one is like really pulling at my heart. Um, and if they need help, you know, I threw some that I've used before with people up there. Psalm 6, 23, 27, 43, 46. I mean, those are just a few. I thought I'd give you kind of an example of the way that I do this. So Psalm 46, if I was helping someone turn this into a prayer, I'll first share the what it actually says, and then I'm going to show you how I would turn it into a prayer. Um, and I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but 
says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So just taking that portion of scripture, if I was helping someone, sometimes it's hard for people to understand when I talk about this, so I like to give them an example. One of the ways I would change it is to say, God, you are my refuge and my strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. And then I would even encourage them, because this is how I pray, help me not to fear, right? It's not just like like mindlessly repeating what the psalm says. It's finding the parts that you're like, yes, this resonates with me, but I don't know that I believe that. And so I would say, therefore, I will not fear. Help me not to fear. Though it feels like the earth gives way, and when it feels like the mountains be moved into the heart in the, of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, I skipped down to verse 7, help me remember that you are with me, that you are my fortress. Um, that's a very practical way to help people learn how to pray through their struggles and to really make it personal. They can change out the pronouns and kind of connect it to their personal situation, and it will help them to find hope in the midst of their struggle. Could I just make a comment? Sure. When I prayed for some people that were going through this kind of struggle in my group, um, sometimes I'll put it, I'll set aside a day to fast for them. Mm. And if I do, I sometimes I'll ask the Lord for a psalm or a portion of scripture and do that for them yes. to teach them how to do it, kind of. And I'll pray through one of the psalms and then put their name in it and yes. pray that and put their name in it and then I give that to them. I love it. With their name in it and that gives them the idea because sometimes if I say, I'm fasting and praying for you today, they don't really know. They don't have that idea. So right. I do my prayer for them, give it to them, and then the next time maybe they have the idea of how to do it. Absolutely. I love that. That's a great, and a great way to model and, and present that example to them um, without it even being like, let me teach you how. You just give it right. to them, and right. then they take it and understand kind of what you're using it for, and that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Number five, encourage honest prayers. I, I included this because I feel like sometimes, especially if I am discipling or trying to help someone who it has been a Christian for a while, we sometimes have these ideas, or even if they haven't been a Christian for a while, I guess anyone, you, you have an idea of what your prayer life should look like. And you kind of can get stuck on like, this is how I pray in a way that pleases or honors God or what I'm supposed to talk about. Um, and I think it can be really important to remind people who are struggling that crying out to God out of their suffering or their struggle is exactly what he wants from us. He wants to hear our hearts. And again, you can connect it back to the Psalms in identifying like, yes, pour out your heart to God and then remind yourself of who he is. Remind yourself of his faithfulness, but be honest with him. Tell him exactly how you feel, exactly where you're struggling. Even if, you know, I've had people say, I just feel like God you know, like my struggles are, are too minimal or like he wouldn't want to hear about this. And it's, I think just reminding people to be really honest um, and to ask for God's help in the places where, you know, maybe even in prayer, it's hard. Like, Lord, help me to figure out how you want me to pray to you and to share my struggles with you. Number six, read a book together. Um, I have some resources pulled together at the end. What I love about the 
doing books is you can let the book do the talking and you can actually learn from the books as well so you could do this also as a community group maybe you see kind of a theme of things that people are interested in or struggling with um, as they pointed out earlier we have the liberty as leaders to choose a focal point for our groups so if you find that this is coming up it could be a really great opportunity to go ahead and read a book together and let the book kind of do the part of the discipling process um, and teaching the content and then you just discuss it. Ultimately, our goal is, um, and this is really important, our goal is not relief from suffering, but to know Christ in the midst of it. And I think that this is really important because sometimes I think we can make it sound like if people just had enough faith or if they were close enough to God, they wouldn't have those feelings anymore. And I, I don't, we don't know what that person's story looks like. I don't think that that's a promise we can make. What we can promise is that no matter what a person feels or what they're experiencing or how they're suffering, that Christ is with them in it and that there is hope in that. And so um, I think just keeping that in mind kind of gives context to all of it, that, that we're not ultimately trying to make it so this person never has the struggle anymore. We're trying to help them to know Christ deeper in the midst of it. And some of the, the verses that I just love to this point are um, first James 1 12 blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him um, blessed blessed is the one who perseveres under trial so holding on to that remembering that second Corinthians four seventeen. we have to keep this in right context we're not trying to say anyone's suffering feels light and momentary, but ultimately in the whole grand story, it is light and momentary. So our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an internal glory that far outweighs them all. And I just like, it just makes me so hopeful even seeing that. Um, and then Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And it, I, I was just talking with someone the other day, you know, why, why suffering? Why, why would God allow this person to suffer? And we started talking about how one of the, the hard but beautiful things that comes out of suffering is that we understand Christ's suffering better. We understand his suffering on our behalf. And that is such a beautiful thing when we think about how he saved us and um, I think just remembering the hope in that that even in the middle of difficulty that there is good in getting to know Christ through his suffering um, and that there is encouragement and hope for us in that okay finally if you feel in over your head ask for help. If you have come to all this, maybe you've tried a few things and they're like, I do not know how to respond to these issues or if I'm doing a good job. Um, your coaches, Northridge in general, we are here to help. You can talk with your group coach. Uh, they talked about that earlier. That's a great first place to start. 
you could suggest biblical counseling. And depending on the capacity, like they're talking about capacity here at Northridge, and they have a great counseling ministry here. But if maybe something's not lining up for some reason, maybe the person you're trying to help, I don't know why they wouldn't want to come here for counseling, but maybe they don't want to come here for counseling. Or maybe, you know, the times that are available don't work with their schedule. And you're like, I don't, I, I, I don't know where else to suggest that they go. Um, I put Fieldstone Counseling on there, and I think it's listed in your notes, too. This is an organization, a biblical counseling organization located in Ohio. They offer remote counseling, and so it could be easier for them to get good biblical counseling um, through that organization. Um, I'm certainly not trying to say they should go there, but I was trying to offer it as another um, possibility. When I did the pre-teach for this, uh, one of the people who was listening, Eric Lentola, he said, you know, it kind of sounds like you were saying, like, relationships matter over remedies, relief, and relegation. And I was like, that's great. I love it. So, yeah, that is one of my key points, that relationships matter more than remedies, relief, and relegation. When in doubt, pursue the relationship with the person in your group. You know, look for just tangible ways that you can embody Christ to them and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Christ. I meant to put it on here, but I forgot. You are also welcome to email me if you have a question. Um, it's not in the notes, so I will tell you my email address. <laughs> it is just beth.clays, C-L-A-E-S, at gmail.com. Um, or you could email, I'm sure, someone on staff and they, they could get it to you too. But if you have any questions, like, you know, something comes up, feel free to shoot me an email. I don't know if I can help, but if I can, I'm more than happy to try. And then, as promised, here are some of the books that I have used in counseling and found helpful. Um, I tried to pick ones that would be relevant to a, a variety of issues. Um, if I had to choose one that really could be helpful across many issues, I'd say that top one, Untangling Emotions, is really, really relevant in terms of just how to think biblically about emotions. It doesn't go specifically into anxiety and depression, but it talks about fear, it talks about grief, um, and it could really, I found it helpful. I've used it a lot and everyone I've used it with has found it helpful. So it could be a good book to do as a community group or to read alongside someone who is struggling. But Suffering by Paul Tripp, a small group book for the anxious heart or the hurting heart. When people are big and God is small, which is kind of about like people pleasing, fearing people more than God, and then a praying life really touches on that, like how to pray and the importance of honest prayers. And that, that's, I think, the end of what I had to share with you guys. We have a few minutes left. I would love to hear if you guys have questions um, or comments, thoughts. What's your email address? It is beth.clays, it's C-L-A-E-S, at Gmail. Yep. That was an easy one. <laughs> Is it all small caps? Doesn't matter. It'll get to me either way. Any questions? Yeah. So I guess, do you think your approach would change depending on the audience? Because I personally, I lead, I lead a group of a lot of like college kids. Mm. So I'm sure my experience with this might be different than somebody dealing with mature believers or older, older individuals. Um, I mean, it, would my approach be different? Yes and no. I think that I would, I try to kind of tailor how I would approach any person, but um, I would tend to 
incorporate personally some of these, no matter what level of maturity they have. Um, so like even for someone who is really new to the faith, I think um, I might start with the psalm. Like that's really easy to kind of walk through or like just find a psalm that really resonates with you. Um, or going through a book of the Bible. If they're a reader, I think reading a book is great, but a lot of, for some people reading totally intimidates them and they don't want to read through a whole book. Um, but yeah, I think I would incorporate pieces of these, but I, you know, I think tailoring it to the personality of the person for sure. Yeah. Um, no, but in my experience of working with, or just interacting with uh, people in their depression, um, or anyone uh, getting anxious and that um, when they just shut down and kind of remove themselves from the environment and kind of um, you, you reach out and you, you try to get them and you can't get hold of them. They are not answering their phones. You can't, you can't get them. Um, yeah. Do you have any experience or any recommendations on like the best way to get around to those people that like I feel like they need that community just the time. They need that community, but yeah that's a really great question um i think that again i tailor my response a little bit differently depending on a few factors you know like how how connected to this person have i been in the past if i've been more connected to them i might feel more comfortable being a little bit more like show up at their house with coffee or something like that you know if, if we haven't really been close that might not be the the right approach um i think that I would, um, I wouldn't give up sending even one-sided encouragements. Um, and maybe even one of the things I would do is send those one-sided encouragements, not really expecting them to respond, especially if I know sometimes I get into a cycle like that, but I'd make a point, maybe I'd put reminders in my own phone, like, you know, once every couple of days, shoot a text them, let them know that you're thinking and praying about them. Um, ask them sometimes if there is a need that you can help out with. Um, Offer, you know, if community group is overwhelming, is there one or two people that maybe they'd meet for coffee? Um, if, if the answer to all those things is still no, I think I would pray, pray, pray that, that God would either give me wisdom on a different approach to reach them um, or that he would just, you know, he would open their eyes or give them the strength they need to kind of pull out of that and, and begin to get back into relationships. But I think in those situations, I would constantly look at it through the lens of what can I do? How do I please God in this situation? How do I love this person well? And ultimately how they respond, I can't, I can't make them respond differently, but I can keep like coming at it with fresh eyes and thinking, how can I encourage them? How can I love them well? Um, and bring your other community group members into it too. As leaders, I think sometimes we feel like we have the responsibility to be that person all the time. But again, as I pointed out earlier, we don't necessarily have to be the one. We just need to encourage others to do it too. So maybe it's like, hey, once a week, could each one of us commit to texting, even before it gets to that point where that person won't go out anymore. Um, but that we'll each text them and encourage them or, or do something like that. Um, I think that's kind of... Academically, you know, like, is it pretty damaging to like overly pursue people, or is that? Um, well, I mean, again, I, I think there's so many variables involved in that. I, I think that you have to have a sensitivity to it. Like, if they're if it's shutting them down further, then I would 
periodically still send some kind of a message or a card or something, but I wouldn't expect a response and I wouldn't ask them for a response. Um, but some people, you know, being kind of pushed a little bit sometimes is helpful for them and it draws them out. So I think, um, I don't know of any consistent research that says if someone is shutting down, here's how you should always approach it. But I think it's kind of being sensitive, prayerful, and, and choosing how to move forward. Um, it's a good question. We are out of time, so I want to be sensitive to that. Um, but I am happy to hang around for a little bit longer if you guys have other questions or anything else you want to touch base on. Um, thanks so much for coming. And, Have a great night. I think this this is the end then, right? Yeah, it's the end. Have a great night. So I walked in a little late. Are you sharing this? Um